0: Hey, listeners of the Bio Report, I want to tell you about a new member benefit from the California Technology Council. CTC has teamed with Reprovada to offer members six months of Reprovada's COT network service for free, which gives companies the power of a VPN at a fraction of the cost. A remote, flexible workforce is the new normal, but most corporate networks aren't built to accommodate work from home at scale. Reprovada's COT network offers an Easily deployable, affordable, and scalable solution to securely enable remote workers and protect the corporate network. To learn more about this and other member benefits, go to californiatechnology.org forward slash member benefits. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is the Bio Report. As some jurisdictions move to lift shelter-in-place orders and seek to restore economic life to normal, there's growing concerns about the health consequences of moving too fast and the failure to make decisions without adequate testing to guide the process. Fred Brown, President and Chief Operating Officer of the big data health consulting firm Fred Brown Management Consulting, discussed beating the COVID-19 pandemic ahead of a piece he's writing for the fall issue of the Journal of Commercial Biotechnology. Brown offers a few scenarios, but believes it'll take time for life to return to what it was like. We spoke to Brown about the path to vaccines and therapies, what it'll take to move beyond the pandemic, and what we're learning from this pandemic that will help prepare us for the next one. Fred, thanks for joining us.
1: Pleasure. Thanks for having me.
0: We're going to talk about the COVID-19 pandemic, an article you're working on for an upcoming edition of the Journal of Commercial Biotechnology about the issues the pandemic has raised and a, a framework for people to think about where we are in the pandemic as it progresses. Perhaps we can start with some basics. Why is this virus so dangerous and what is it about life today that makes us so vulnerable to it?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. So I, I guess, you know, the first thing uh, about the, the the COVID virus, unlike most of the ones that we're familiar with, is that it's a novel virus and we have absolutely no immunity to it. So it's going to take a long time for us to build what they call herd immunity uh, to, to to this particular virus. It's also very contagious, uh, much more than we originally thought because there are a lot of asymptomatic patients that, that are involved and it could infect. Uh, uh, well, it's been infecting up to 30% of the populations uh, in, in the, the higher risk areas like health care and, uh, uh, and, and essential workers uh, from our initial surveys that are too small to really get a general sense of this. But we think uh, the R value, the reproductive value is well over 2.5 at this point. Uh, it's much more deadly than, uh, than flu viruses that, that we've had that we're more exposed to. Uh, not quite as deadly as SARS not quite a, not not as deadly as MERS but in in the middle range uh, and of course when so many people get infected we have a high death rate as a result and it's a fa- it's in a family of viruses for which we really haven't developed any effective vaccines yet so uh, we're going to have to uh, develop some new technologies placing heavy bets on new technologies at this point and we don't really know at this point also uh, about the immunity levels that we are conferred with when we actually are uh, uh, when we when we have the disease. We don't know the duration or the uh, the amount of, of of immunity we have conferred. And the, on the vaccine side, we don't really know what the a mutation rate is. We believe that it's not too high comparatively, compared to, for example, malaria or uh, or, or HIV. But um, we're still finding out more, much more about this virus. So it's such early days that it's hard to say definitively give you any definitive answers, but we can say what the trends generally have been and what the data to date tells us about. The reason that we're so vulnerable is because our economies really do depend on global supply chains and we're traveling around everywhere. We have a lot of face-to-face service-based industries that we depend upon uh, and we have ex- extremely high dens- population densities in a lot of the world that we we visit and are in cities as we have become, have become more industrialized away from the agrarian society. So we're much more mobile than we used to be. We're much more social as human beings, uh, have been than ever before. Uh, we have an information environment that's truly ubiquitous and engaging and uh, and uh, our politics are, are pretty polarized. So that's frequently a lot of the discussions we have about how to best attack the disease uh, can be divided between countries, divided between different parts of the country uh, and between different populations in the country. So all those things make it uh, kind of a perfect storm. And I and I think we're gonna find that this pandemic is the first of many that we're gonna have. Uh, sadly, we've kind of dodged a few bullets in the past, SARS, MERS, Zika, uh, with Ebola. But every two years, we have something that's pretty threatening. And so far, they've all died down. And and this, uh, this COVID-19 is the first it hasn't. So we're kind of up against it.
0: We're at a point of great tension between what's in the best interest of public health and concerns about the long-term economic impacts of sheltering in place and social distancing. The best case scenario would be to develop a vaccine, inoculate everyone and get on with our lives, but that doesn't appear to be a likely scenario anytime soon. What will it take to develop and deliver a
1: vaccine? so yeah you know i I've, I've developed several vaccines in my career and been part of big teams that do that um it's uh the, the vaccine development process it can be uh, quite quite challenging uh, for a number of reasons Uh, First, it has to be safe. And uh, with such a large population of the world being infected by COVID and and needing a vaccine, that means when we test the product, uh, initially, it'll probably go through a limited licensing process. It means that not every population will be approved for giving the vaccine to, because to test all the different kinds of populations in the world that we have, all the different genetic types, there may be some uh, effects uh, of the vaccine uh, on certain peoples with certain genetic uh uh, uh with certain gene, gene with certain genes that um, that it won't be a, uh, an effective vaccine or it actually be a could be a dangerous to those people so we have to do a lot of safety testing initially and to, to move more quickly i think we're going to uh because we so desperately want a vaccine for the general population that we will probably um you know approve a limited uh license vaccine initially and then move to explore other populations as the vaccine becomes more and more available uh, because obviously we have to scale up the vaccine as well. And we're talking about, you know, 7.8 billion doses potentially. Not, we don't need to actually quite that many, but it's certainly more than 5 billion um, uh, doses to, to get the herd, to get the immunity levels up that we need to. So that's the first issue is safety. And that, those safety tests, you know, first we we create um, uh, 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 models in mice, and then we move to generally um, uh, the eight models, uh, although we've seen uh, some some opportunities in the weasel models. So we have to have two different models um, uh, of animal. Right now, we're going to move right from mice to human and then come back to the second animal model and what they do, what they call longer-term safety studies in large, in large animals in order to save time. The, the uh, regulators have decided to lower some of the barriers that we normally have, but it still takes time for that. Generally, I think we'll be in our first rounds of safety, uh, you know, demonstrating safety um, already. So now about eight vaccines now have actually, nine vaccines have come through the pipeline are what they call phase one trials. These are trials that actually you inject what they call, you know, uh, 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 people who are, um, who are, Young and fit and not and not ill. So it's healthy volunteers that sign up for getting the first vaccines because we want to make sure that if they, if they hurt the healthy volunteers, then obviously uh, uh, compromised patients will be unlikely to be able to uh, take, the, take, take take the test, t- t- take the vaccine. So we start off with phase one. And once phase one is done, that 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 goes pretty quickly. And most vaccines actually make it past phase one. Most vaccines is about a seventy percent, sixty eight percent, you know, rate of from creating a novel vaccine uh, for a novel uh, for novel virus. We get about a you know a high seventies. Uh, I'm sorry, a high sixties to a low seventies kind of probability of success. So those a lot of those first vaccines will go through phase one. The tricky area is phase two. Phase two is long-term safety and more importantly dosing. Uh, so you have to really under you have to in order to make sure that the, the dose is efficacious. You're really going right at the, up to the line, right? Because these vaccines they actually have pieces of the, uh, 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 the pieces of antigen in them that cause you to have an immune response. So. If you go too far, you'll have too heavy a immune response. It'd be like having the disease. If you go too little, you won't have enough of an immune response in order to get, uh, to, get uh, to get protected. So, uh, you know, making that line just right is actually quite challenging and the dosing uh, can be very tricky. And typically uh, for a novel vaccine, we're talking about, oh boy, about, about between five and 22% of uh, vaccines get through. Uh, and move to phase three, and phase, th- and so you, that, that's really the sort of the killing fields of, of vaccine development is this phase two dosing piece, and there are various tricks we have in order to try to make the dose more appropriate. You can try to put adjuvants in the dose, so you can kind of try to under underperform the vaccine, pump it up with adjuvants that cause you to have a larger immune response. That gets quite tricky to manage um, uh, in a number of ways, but it is a technique that works. One of the things that we're, worried, we're we're working on two we're worried about two things in this process. The first thing is called uh, is, is when you actually make the 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 um, you actually make the disease more powerful because you suddenly uh, have a vaccine that can kill off uh, parts of the weaker parts of the virus strains and produce more of uh, uh, the the stronger parts of the viral change. So we have selection pressures when we start to uh, vaccinate, and you can actually cause uh, the vaccine and a number of other things become actually stronger, uh, and that's uh, that's that could be quite dangerous. Uh, obviously, because we don't want to create a stronger uh, virus in the vaccinated people, we want to we want to weaken it and, and cause protection. So that's what we're looking for. The other thing we're looking for is mutations, because the more this virus mutates, like malaria and HIV, those are very hard to kind of focus on conserve parts of the proteins that are expressed on the virus to be able to. Uh, to, to control it effectively so um uh, when you w- when you uh, have a high highly mutative uh uh virus then it's very hard to create uh, a vaccine for it um and then that, so you now you move into phase three phase three is efficacy trials and about 70 percent of the of the vaccines uh, usually make it through efficacy and th- those processes typically uh just so you you, you know th- those processes typically could take you know, f- Four, five, six, 10, even you know, fifteen years. Uh, we're hoping that this this virus comes through very quick. This, this vaccine comes through very quickly. We're looking at uh, 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 eight vaccines. As I said, they're using four different platform types: an RNA, DNA, and then a vaccine live and, and attenuated vectors. And that helps the vaccine to get. Uh, th- those are platforms that help the genetic the genetic material uh, or the or the or, or, or the proteins. Uh, that are supposed to cause the antigen, uh, antigen re- response to, to actually be delivered to the cells. Um, so, the problem that we have right now is the platforms that are proven uh, take a lot longer to develop. The platforms that are unproven are faster, but of course, they're unproven and they're not scale. So, um, if we have failures in the early rounds, and I'd say we can, we'll have a sense of this around September, whether things are getting through to phase three. Um, then it's, we're on a much longer path for development. If we are successful, say in November, we've got a couple of c- candidates that make it through to phase three testing, true phase three testing, uh, not adept, you know, not, not sort of acceptance, but but unsureness, un- unsure, but true phase three testing, um, then, uh, then, then we're on a faster path and that, that'll be exciting. And if we're on a faster path, then we'll probably need to start to develop the manufacturing processes um, uh, in in parallel so that we can develop enough of the vaccine that we can you know have a significant impact on creating immunity in the human population by having enough production. Uh, and you know, when you talk about doing all these things in in parallel rather than sequence, you're talking about, first of all, a large investment. Now we're talking you know 30, 40 billion dollars um, plus, you're taking a lot more risk with both the people who are con- being a part of the trial as well as the patients downstream who have to you know, try out these, 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 uh, these vaccines that may not be uh, as fully tested as we like to have them if it were not a pandemic situation.
0: The World Health Organization recently reported that only two to three percent of people have developed antibodies to the virus. I've seen some other numbers that suggest this could be higher. But it would suggest herd immunity will not protect us should we push to a return to normalcy. What's the risk, and what don't we know that we need to know before taking such steps?
1: Well, that, that's that, that's a great point, and um, basically, the, uh, the the the. I kind of call that getting brutal. So when you say, you know, we're just going to let it, what they call, run through the herd, let the virus run through the herd, what you're doing is you're gambling that the total humanitarian cost of shutting down the economy, um, which is is expensive, first of all, and second, does cause health impacts because you're not, you know, you've got people dying of other disease types. Um, uh, Also, uh, if you shut down the virus disease, suddenly um, you've got uh, people who are, Poor and not having enough nutrition and having other health effects um, uh, actually increase their, their their death rate. So there's a, there's an aspect of that uh, versus the total cost of letting the virus just run its course. And the kinds of numbers that we need in order to well so first of all that's that's a big bet. you know this is our first battle with the virus. We've had it go around the world once. Uh, it's killed over 2 million people um, and it gets more and more powerful as it goes around the world. So the first, million people took four months uh, to die. The next million people to die took 12 days. So you can get a sense of just how fast this virus can go if you don't uh, uh, if you don't try to stop it with social distancing. Luckily, now we're, we have some social distancing in place around the world, and we're now getting things more in control so that that, that death rate will go down. Uh, but it's still extremely dangerous if we let it go up. And so what the people who are saying, let's get brutal, are saying is, You know, if we let the virus go around the world enough times, um, then we'll have a herd immunity. Well, we've done the simulations, and what we think is the case is that it's uh, quite a transmissible virus, That it has a reasonably high death rate, not quite as high as we originally thought, but but still probably, you know, probably in the... you know, 0.7% range to 1% range would be our best, right now our best guess is run between 0. 0.3, which I think is too low and well over one, which I think is too high. So if I had to guess right now, body of X would probably say between 0. 0.5 and 0. 0.9, something like that. Well, if you do the math on, on a point, even a you know, 0.7, say, uh, simulation, you're, you're causing, um, and, and, and then we think that this virus will go through the world Six or seven times in the next eighteen months, that that would cause over a million people in the United States to die, and that's a that's a high death rate. Uh, and I don't think we have to make that bet yet. I think we can hold the virus at bay a little bit and then discover much more about it. So rather than making that bet right now and letting the virus loose and sort of cutting the cutting away the uh, the, uh, the the umbilical cord, you know, you're sort of hanging by the thread of. Okay, you no, know, uh, I'm not. I'm not very happy in this basket. Let me cut the rope now and see how hard, how far I fall. And you know, you don't want to be wily e. coyote in that situation. You want to sort of have a nice, you know, a, a shortfall. And we can figure that out by knowing much more about uh, first the the, morta- the true death rate, mortality rate. We call it the CFR, case fatality rate. Uh, second, much more about the prevalence. of so how 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 concentrated it is in, po- in, in the population. So if you let it go, you know, what's the likely outcome? Uh, third, the a number of asymptomatic. So asymptomatic are people we don't see right now, but they are able to infect other people and cause cause uh, cause problems. Uh, and then um, you know uh, th- uh, those three things. But the one thing that I'm most concerned about actually is what are the long term health effects? So if we let this thing go. And suddenly we find out that in certain populations, or even for broad populations, it has complications that we weren't initially knowledgeable of, like uh, long-term brain problems, long-term heart, lung function problems, long-term digestive tract problems, you know, vital organ type issues. That would be a surprise, uh, but we want, and so we want to find that out before we let let it run. So my, 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 uh, if we run, let the herd immunity run with what we believe is the case about these. About these, about about this virus, we believe that it would take um, about about ten or twelve runs through the Earth uh, before we even got close to herd immunity. So, in the next 18 months, if we let it if we let it go completely and don't respond. Um, As I said, it would kill, uh, you know, uh, about 1.3 million people and about 37 percent of us would have an immunity, only 37 percent. And in this case, we need to get if we're talking about perfect protections, which means, you know, that the people we have a herd effect uh, and that uh, they're we're able to distance ourselves by using them as a, a, a shield you need 54.5% of the population to have, have herd immunity in order to achieve that. Normally, we like to go beyond that. Uh, and in this case, you probably need to get to 80 to 85%, what they call uh, herd immunity or immunity in the herd uh, in order to protect the vulnerable people on, on the planet. The other big issue is we're not really sure about the duration or quality of the level of immunity we're going to have. So in other words, right now, MERS and, and SARS, you have about a two year amount of immunity, and the immunity is, is pretty good. But for other uh, diseases like the common cold, which is another coronavirus, uh, you have no immunity, and uh, and uh, and uh, so you know, as, as, as it doesn't last very long, and you have no immunity. So um, that's uh, you know th- we're, we really need to learn a lot more about the virus before we before we make such a, a big decision. Frankly,
0: testing has been a source of controversy and confusion. What types of testing do you think is needed and what role should it play in terms of both making a decision to relax restrictions and ongoing surveillance?
1: Yes, that's a, that's a great question. So there's been, there has been controversy and there are uh, three kinds of testing that we have to do. Uh, the first kind of testing is called surveillance testing. And basically, this is the kind of testing that you do at large populations um, to get a general sense in the population uh, of uh, of whether you've got a lot of people with the disease. And there are two kinds of surveillance testing. The first is generalized surveillance testing, where you go out and you randomly pick a few people, uh, you, you pick an event and anybody, at, or or you at a grocery store and you start with what they call thermally screen them. So you look at that, the test, anyone who has a fever, you, before they enter the store, you say, I'm sorry, we have a fever, please go get tested. and At that point, they go get tested and you can find out uh, whether or not what the kind of level of prevalence generally is uh, in, in in the population if you're doing that enough. And uh, we have to do a, a lot more of that right now. Uh, and you'll, I think you'll see that ramp up shortly. Uh, then you've got uh, sentinel testing. Sentinel testing is when you decide, you know, I'm really interested in one particular location. I really want to understand prevalence of the disease in that location. Suppose, for example, you've got a you know major plant that's going to create all sorts of N- N95 masks. Well, you'd really want to know Quite, ex- quite precisely and test everybody going in and out of that plant. First, what the baseline is, and then what, what the, what the uh, level of protections are that you're instituting. So those are surveillance kind of testing. And they're very helpful for you know uh, f- catching asymptomatic patients, ca- catching patients early on the, in the disease before they can spread the virus. That's the idea. You try to catch them before they spread the virus. The second big kind of test we have is uh, the f- testing for the virus itself. And there, you're actually looking for the RNA or DNA or, 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 or early antigens um, that indicate that you have the virus, and uh, you want even want to know whether the virus is shedding and active. And these RNA tests, these, they call them PCR tests. Um, you know, have, uh, actually give you a reading about wh- whether you've got the virus or not. So that's the second kind of test. And the third kind of test is basically uh, a test for immunity. So, if you have enough of the right kind of antibodies, and we're still discovering which ones those are, and what kind of quantities you need, uh, you will be immune from the disease for a certain period of time. We don't know how long, but hopefully a year, hopefully a season. And if so, you'd like to know that because then you have kind of superpowers, if you will, and and you want to be able to, you know, go out, do things. You won't be contagious to anybody. You'll be able to, you know, be in environments that are highly concentrated with COVID and not get sick. So, those are the three Levels of tests. There have been a lot of controversy about how many tests, and the reason there's a controversy is there are two kinds of there are two kinds of um, of uh, of goals that you have with test of testing. The first kind of testing is population level goals. Population level goals are uh, uh, for understanding, you know, are, are used by epidemiologists and they're, they're there to figure out what the prevalence of the disease is, some of the characteristics of its fatality rate uh, and so on. And so they only need to have one test uh, in, an, in an area of, of that's matrix off. You know, you figure out what the you know, what, what your what your density of population is and you figure out what the density of the of the virus within that population matrix is. And then you can get a lot of very interesting Especially important policy information. But you only need to do one test. And uh, right, of the person, you find out the person is, has COVID and that's a check in the box and you have the prevalence levels. There's another the other kind of testing is actually individual care testing. So you've got a population level and individual level. And if you think about it, to take care of a patient and to actually use the test to decide whether to turn on and turn off the economy, which is ultimately what we want to do here, you actually have to have a lot more uh, penetration of uh, and, and density of testing. And that's because once a person is known to have COVID, they'll be shedding that virus uh, for up to you know 20 or 30 days, even if well, the, the longest I've seen is 42 days. That's an awfully long time to start and, and test. and so every few days you're going to want to do another test to make sure the person is truly safe to go out uh, in, into the world. If you want to take care of that person, you know a person who is in end stage coronavirus, they may they may need you may need to take five or six tests a day. The other thing is of course, is you do more surveillance, you have to then follow that up with more with uh, with with much more direct viral testing. And so, and then you want to test, follow that viral testing up with immunity testing. So you, uh, so when, when, a, uh, when an epidemiologist says, I need only, you know, 500,000 tests a day to figure out what's going on, a doctor who actually has to treat all those people or an economist who has to figure out whether or not to turn on and off, a, you know, a, a trillion dollar uh, part of our economy is actually going to need literally an, two orders of magnitude more of that testing density than an epidemiologist would.
0: You hear a lot of people talk about testing. I, I hear less talking about data, and it seems to me there's a data issue here. Yes. One of the is is there's been a bit of a data vacuum, in part because of the lack of testing. But does this suggest the need for changes in the way data is gathered and disseminated? And, and do we need some program to ensure data sharing? <sighs>
1: That's a great point. Uh, so not only <laughs> this gets complicated because it turns out that we have such a large asymptomatic population that when you do the when you do all the math and I you know I did the math originally and then it, it was replicated by China, replicated by the United States, and replicated by the United Kingdom, um, where they, we found that basically uh, the large n- amount number of asymptomatic patients and people who can uh, who can um, uh, uh, may, you know make people sick. Uh, and and, and uh, actually occur uh, you know two days before you have symptoms and up to 20 20 days after your symptoms stop uh, and if you don't have and, and a large population we think probably almost maybe 30 percent of the population won't have any symptoms at all this means people are walking around able to uh, able to infect all of their friends and family without knowing that they're doing that and those kinds, of, those kinds of viruses are very, very hard to control. Uh, and so in order to get ahead, the only way you can get ahead of that is by doing what they call tracing. And tracing, uh, me, what, what happens when you, when you are, are doing tracing work is that a person who comes down with the illness and is, uh, is diagnosed, yes, you've got active COVID, is then asked, how many people did you see in the last... 12, 13 day, 14 days during that's the incubation period of the virus, because during that entire period of 14 days, this this, this person who is now ill could have given other people that same illness without knowing it. So they have to go back and remember all the people who they've talked to in the last 14, 15 days. And then... You go to the next level and you say to those people who they've contacted, you may be you may be ill, you have to isolate, but can you also tell me all the people you've contacted? And you can get a sense of just how vast that that effort is going to get, right? Because one, one patient may, may have contacted in some cases, they, they can be responsible for as many as 700 additional cases. They are called super spreaders, and you have to kind of track those guys down, figure out what they're doing that's causing the super spread. Um, and, uh, and then shut that down and try to prevent all these other people from passing on the disease further. And so this, this tracing work is very either very manual and invasive, or it's automated. So if you look at what, company, what countries have done, for example, in Singapore, uh, in Taiwan, uh, they'll have, and in fact, Apple and Google are coming together to actually create the, the, next, the next device uh, all the Apple phones will have embedded in their operating system a Bluetooth function that allows them to identify tokens of, a, of, of anybody who you come within six feet of uh, on their Bluetooth. So as soon as you come into six feet of Bluetooth radius, token will go off. You'll have that person's phone number then in your phone. And if that person or you become sick, you uh, that, that that person's phone will notify your phone, I've just become ill, you should go and get you should go and get checked for COVID, and that, and all the people that who you have contacted in the last 12 days will also be notified. You should be go and, and get tested for COVID, so you and uh, you so you can get a sense of just how intensive the testing is going to have to be, and if we don't have an automated system, how difficult it's going to be to stop this virus uh, from spreading.
0: You've sketched out a couple of different scenarios, but the one I think you see as being most likely is one where the virus subsides and then we have periods of repeated sheltering in place where things get turned on and then turned down. What is life, what should we expect life to be like under this virus until we have treatments and vaccines?
1: Yeah, you know, uh, until we have treatments and vaccines, uh, we will have to continue to shelter in place. That's really our only hope. Of, of of slowing down its its reproductive cycle, uh, and if the reproductive cycle uh, you know stays above one, it's, then it's going to it's going to compound itself exponentially. If we can push the what they call the R values below one by social distancing, by by preventing the virus from touching us and reproducing, uh, that's the social distancing piece of it. Then uh the then our life looks very different. Uh, I think what will happen is uh, basically you'll have to look at your activities and you'll have to decide: Are these activities first of all how important are these activities? If they're very, if they're very important activities, um, then you have to say: Can I can I cho- socially distance successfully, or will it be very hard for me to socially distance? If it's going to be easy for you to socially distance, then you go ahead and do those activities, right? So, you know, you, you go for a walk, you put on your mask, you always stay six feet away, that's pretty easy. But if you have a, a an airplane flight that you really wanna take uh, because of, uh, uh, you, you really have to go get somewhere uh, in an essential way, then it's very difficult to socially distance. And you really want to make it, you really want to decide, is this really what I want to do? And if it is what I want to do, then how am I going to wash down all the airplane seats? How am I going to get an N95 mask? How am I going to get protection for a a multi-hour flight? And my guess is right now, you probably can't get it. Uh, I don't think that we have enough protections in place to truly know whether you're going to be safe. The only way you can do that is to test every passenger who comes on the plane, Make sure they do not have COVID. That means you're taking a, take a, a full test. Uh, ask them what their health history has been. Uh, t- take their temperature frequently throughout the flight. Make sure they never come down with anything. And then when you get to the other side of the flight, if anyone's come down, you're going to have to quarantine that entire flight for 14 days. So it's going to be extremely difficult um, to do that kind of an activity. If you take that decision and you make that trade off, you know that's that's that that's uh, that's that's your decision, but. Uh, if you don't, if you think it's not so important an activity, then maybe you want to, don't want to do it. The last set of activities, though, are the activities that aren't very important, and uh, for though uh, or that you can socially distance pretty easily. So uh, there are things like um, you know going to the bar, uh, going to a big football game, uh, uh, going to the beach. You know, you really have to think through: Is that really the way I want to take? I really want to take that risk for this activity. Uh, there are other other activities that it's pretty easy to socially distance. Not not, not terribly important, like playing video games, watching Netflix. And feel feel free to do, do all those things if you're as long as you're socially distant. But the trick is going to be to protect yourself while you're while you're performing activities at work, at play um, that are very difficult to socially distance and very important to your personal life. And that 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 you should really think about as a you know every human every person should think about what their priorities are there.
0: Are the- Pandemic is changing the way we work, play and shop and I think some of those changes will be lasting. At the same time it's also changing the delivery of healthcare. There've been a number of obstacles that in, in recent years slowed the adoption of things like telehealth but they seem to be swept away in an instant with the pandemic. How do you see this experience reshaping healthcare in the United
1: States? That's a that's a great question. I think uh, unfortunately, you know, our healthcare system in the United States Was already having challenges um, with with profitability. Most of our healthcare, as you know, is not for profit. They um, and um, and they make most of their money uh, in elective surgery areas. And because we have this pandemic now, a lot of those beds that were formerly for for designed to take care of these specialty surgeries, the more the more lucrative areas of the practice, are suddenly um, no longer. are suddenly no no longer being performed because of all the COVID priorities that are being given to the hospitals. So a lot of the hospitals you're seeing their down da- their their revenues are down 40 percent, uh, and so they're having tremendous challenges. And so I think we're going to have to re rethink our the reimbursement and the value system of our hospitals carefully so that they can you know stay stay around because we need our hospitals, we need our doctors. Otherwise, you know we'll have a lot of trouble with other, in other areas. The other thing you're seeing in the short term is that people are actually afraid to go see their doctor and they may have fairly significant other conditions. Uh, we saw a 58% downturn, in people, you know, being willing to go and visit their doctors for diabetes, healthcare, uh, heart disease, and so on. And that in the short term is gonna, be, uh, is gonna actually cause uh, a lot of conditions to start to flare up uh, probably in six months from now. So, you know, we've, we've got to rethink the way we're delivering, you know, first, how we value the different parts of healthcare. And then, second, how we deliver it. On the delivery side of it, I think uh, whatever you can do remotely is going to be very important to do because you don't want to expose yourself uh, to a pandemic virus uh, that we don't know the incidence of or the prevalence of in, 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 in around the, um, uh, you know, in, in, in your area. Uh, especially that we can just pick up by touching surfaces that everyone else is going to be picking up. Uh, light switches, doorknobs, things like that, uh, countertops. Uh, so uh, to the extent possible, especially elderly people, especially people with other medical conditions, sadly, they should uh, find a doctor, and they will find doctors, who are able to work with them through telemedicine uh, and not through a, a direct contact any longer. And that will happen rapidly, I believe
0: we're thinking about how we can get past this pandemic but realistically we need to think about how we also prepare for the next one why should we be thinking about more pandemics to come and have we learned anything yet that will better prepare us to respond in the future
1: well you know that's a great question we we um we actually prepare um oh, there's there's a, in Europe I, I i was in europe for many years and and, and the us and europe used to have uh, pandemic, you know, uh, viral games basically, and we would kind t- of t- see what um, what what viruses did well, what viruses didn't do so well, how humans did, how the viruses did, um, and uh, uh, and this is called uh, it's called prepare and prepare uh, is something Europe still does. The United States dropped out of that, unfortunately, uh, and of course, Asia. Uh, does this in, in, with, with with real viruses? Said they they have a lot of attacks of of SARS and so on. So they're really ready for a lot of these attacks. The Things that we're gonna I think find out is number one, uh, what we found out is it really depends on the kind of virus you're talking about. So for you know Ebola, AIDS, uh, I'm sorry, HIV and others, we you know those are more vector restricted. But for these viruses that are flu like, transmit human to human, stay in the air. Um, and are infective, stay for, are, 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 you know, stay for a long time on surfaces, are high, trans, highly transmittable and deadly. Those are the ones we really have to watch out for. And I think we're going to learn a couple things. I think first of all we're going to have a. Um, a a real infrastructure building of our diagnostic testing infrastructure. And right now, our diagnostic testing infrastructure is quite fragmented. I think that's going to have to come together nationally. If you look at other countries who've been able to respond faster and better than us, countries like Vietnam, Korea, Taiwan, they're smaller, but they they had a testing capability already in place. And if we have a testing capability already in place, we'll be able to stop the virus much more rapidly before it goes into the you know, exponential growth phase that really surprises our, our business leaders who are thinking linearly, thinking they have time, and suddenly being overwhelmed by a sudden disease state because we can't, we don't know that it, it, it exists. So, in the future, when, when China publishes a, you know, in this case it was China, it'll, it may be someone else in the future, but we think it usually does come from China because they have a large population of the animals that support these kinds of viruses. Um, they, you know, we would, they would publish the genome like they did on, on January 12th. And that, at that point, we would develop a test very rapidly, and we would test for the incidence of the virus immediately, rather than waiting until we see the, our first deaths, which is what we did. So we let the virus—we gave the virus about six or seven weeks to kind of start to build up its momentum and create this this exponential uh, challenge for us. Uh, if you if you if you find it in the first in the first few days of a viral outbreak, all of a sudden you've got a lot less to contend with. So that's the first big thing that'll happen. We'll have a much better, I hope, uh, diagnostic infrastructure that tells us pr- about the presence of new novel, novel viruses. The second big thing that'll happen is I think we're going to develop a better technology around vaccines uh, in two ways. First, new platforms that uh, we can that deploy quite rapidly, which will be great if they work, and uh, that have a manufacturing process uh, that will be much more scalable that we're ready for. So that's and that's what I call kind of the Manhattan Project, if you will. That's sort of our big atom bomb against the the virus. If we have all our smartest people working on the Manhattan Project, how do we develop it? How do we get the best virus? How do we then you know, manufacture it? And then how do we get it out to all the people where the where the epidemic is occurring rapidly? That's that's a Manhattan type project, and and I think we'll see a lot of uh, partnering. To, to make that happen and a lot of money going to that that kind of oper- operation so that we have better vaccine development for viruses in the future. And the third big area is I think we're going to learn a lot more about how to respond economically. You know, our our when we after the after World War II we had the Bretton Woods accord and we kind of restructured the way we do a lot of our economies and uh and I think we'll see that we probably need that again at the end of this big battle. It's a it's, another, it's, our, it's our next. It's it's our you know, third world war, if you will. I think we'll see, you know, how we can uh, organize ourselves so that um, we don't have big ups and downs in supply, big ups and downs in demand. Uh, that we and, and we figure out you know, how what parts of the what parts of our supply chain should be globalized, which ones should remain more localized, uh, and there'll be a, a I think a, a fairly different kind of structure uh, that's a little bit more uh resilient to this kind of attack than we have right now.
0: Fred Brown, President and Chief Operating Officer of the Big Data Healthcare Consultancy, Fred Brown Management Consulting. Fred, thanks so much for your time today. It's been a
1: pleasure. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it.
0: Thanks for listening. The Bio Report is a production of the Levine Media Group. To automatically download this podcast each week.